We are beginning a one-quarter study of two New Testament letters that we call First and Second Thessalonians. The class is a quarter, but it's actually 12 weeks since there will be a devotional on the 22nd of November. That's the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and that's traditionally a difficult time to have viable classes because of so many people being gone. And so we'll have a devotional that night, but then we'll have 12 of the class period. But before we begin our study, though, there are some things I need to explain to you, if I could. Um, and these are just personal things I want to tell you. When, when it was first decided, and it was a long time ago, that I would teach these two letters, I, I, I initially thought about doing something a little different than the normal. And, and instead of doing a verse-by-verse study of First and Second Thessalonians, I, I, I decided that I was going to teach the class by looking at themes or topics that are found within the letters. And, and, you know, that's one way to study. It's a different way, but it is a way to study. And there are some important themes that are mentioned in these letters. And I got excited about it, and I quickly found 12 themes that I could pursue and uh, worked on them a little bit. And then as time progressed, the idea faded <laughs> as I faded. And, and I just reached the point that I said, no, that's not going to work. I, I'm not going to do that. And so uh, then I had another decision I had to make, and that was if I went back to the text, was I going to divide these eight chapters, five in First Thessalonians 3 and Second Thessalonians, into 12 segments? And we normally have taught this class in either 12 segments or 13 by dividing the letters up. I didn't want to do that. And so I finally decided to use eight outlines, one for each chapter, and those eight outlines would be covered in 12 weeks. If you came in tonight, I hope you got one of the outlines from the stand, which is for 1 Thessalonians 1. Now, there, there is an advantage to that and a disadvantage. The advantage is that we do not have to cover a chapter every week. We do not have to cover a specific number of verses each week. The disadvantage is that I need to pace myself so that we cover eight chapters in 12 weeks and not wind up at the end of 12 weeks with only six chapters covered. And there's one other possibility, and that is if we get through with eight chapters before week 12, we're going to look at some themes of First and Second Thessalonians. Okay, I hope you'll do a little study on your own. Uh, we don't typically ask people to do uh, much on Wednesday night as far as study ahead of time. You'll receive an outline when you come to class. We'll try to make sure that because we're not on a regimented schedule, that there are enough there that you won't, uh, you'll have a chance to cover everything we're going to cover. But uh, just be sure you pick up an outline each week. And 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 these are short chapters, and so uh, try to read them and think about them. And uh, you might do some note taking on your own uh, even before you get to class. 
there are a couple of uh, items that I want to consider by way of introduction before we get to the text. And the first of them has to do with the city of Thessalonica. You could visit Thessalonica today if you wanted to. It is one of the biblical cities that has survived even to today. Many biblical cities don't exist anymore, not at least as they were in biblical times. They may be close by or renamed, rebuilt somehow, but they don't survive uh, as biblical cities. Thessalonica does. It goes by a slightly different name today, and that is Thessaloniki or Nica, uh, it's sometimes called Salonica, and, and the end of it is just slightly changed I-K-I. And incidentally, that's where the shoe brand comes from, Nike. Nike means victory. And so <clears throat> Thessalonica, the name itself, is a, is a female name, believe it or not, and it relates to victory over a group of people. The Nike is the victory part. It is today the second largest city in Greece and has, by some standards, three different populations. In the old historic area, about 350,000 people live. And then in the city proper, about 800 to 850,000 live. In the urban area, about 1,200,000 live. And so it's, it is a large city still. It's a very old city. Um, its original name was Therma. And if you know what a thermos is, a Therma related to hot springs. Therma was hot. Hot springs. This was a place that there were hot springs. In, in 315 B.C., it was renamed from Therma to Thessalonica. And Thessalonica was the half-sister of Alexander the Great, the great Greek ruler, by some accounts one of the greatest warriors ever. Uh, she was married to Cassandra. And Cassander, uh, not Cassandra, Cassander, was one of Alexander the Great's generals. If you know history, and you may know a lot more than I know, Alexander died, I think, when he was like 33 or so, about the time of Christ's uh, death. He, had, he left no male heirs to be on the throne. And so his kingdom, which was expansive, was divided among four generals, and they were divided by directions. Cassander uh, ruled over what was called Macedonia, and... Uh, and he was the king of Macedonia. Uh, incidentally, if you, if you want to do any research and reading, if you're interested in this kind of thing, Cassandra wasn't a very good guy. He really hated his uh, general, uh, but and he did some really bad things. But he was the husband of Thessalonica, and the city was named for her. Now, Skip down, go away from that time, 168 B.C., uh, Rome conquered this area. But it made Thessalonica the capital of, of one of four provinces 
into which Macedonia was divided. And so Thessalonica retained a semblance of importance and, and it even grew in that regard because it was a commercial center. There was an excellent highway that came through Thessalonica known as the Ignatian Way or the Ignatian Road. And it provided a very easy way to transport materials from one place to another. And, and it was also on a harbor. And it was a good harbor. If you look on a map of Greece, uh, you know, Athens will be down, Thessalonica will be up on the Aegean Sea, not on the Mediterranean, but on the Aegean Sea. And uh, most of the citizens who lived in Thessalonica were Greek, but there were also Romans there, as Rome ruled the world. There were Romans there, I'm talking about in the time of Paul, but there were also Jews there. Uh, Jews from the time of the Assyrian captivity had gradually filtered to a number of different parts of the world. And Thessalonica was one of the places that the Jews were. We don't know how many there were, but, but we will know from the text that there was a synagogue there and in order to have a synagogue, you needed 10 uh, male Jews, uh, adult male Jews, to have a synagogue. And so they had one. We, we don't know how many more than that uh, 10 they would have had, but they, they had a number. Um, skip down further. The Turks captured uh, Thessalonica in 1430 A.D. And they ruled... Thessalonica for nearly 500 years. In, in, uh, in 1912, the Greeks reclaimed Thessalonica from Turkey. They turned it over to Greek control. What, what's a little interesting about that is that if you look on a map, Bulgaria, just to the north, Bulgaria wanted Thessalonica. In fact, they sent troops that arrived the day after the Turks turned it over. And they just accepted the fact that it was now Greek and they left instead of creating a problem. Um, and it's remained a Greek city, of course, to this day. Well, that's a little, just a little history. And if, you, if you're a computer person and you want to go on uh, the computer and type in Thessalonica. The Wikipedia article on it is, is lengthy and good, but there are a number of other articles that are also good about Thessalonica and its history. It be an interesting place to visit. If you want to go, uh, I can recommend a good way to fly that I just found out. In fact, I had planned, I had really planned to go to Thessalonica. And I still may go. I don't know. But uh, I, I wanted to go because I thought if I teach this, it would really be nice if I had gone to see the city and see some of the historical sites. Um, the church in Thessalonica, that's more important. Knowing how the church began in Thessalonica will help us to appreciate what Paul wrote and in some cases why he wrote what he wrote. We do know this. We know Paul was responsible for the church coming into existence 
in Thessalonica. How did it happen? Well, in order to learn that, we go back to the book of Acts, don't we? If you look at Acts 15, and, and we'll try to move through this at a fairly decent pace, but Acts 15, following the first uh, mission, what we call missionary trip, the first extended preaching trip that Paul and Barnabas took. Verse 36 says, after or 35, they came, they remained in Antioch. And then verse 36, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back where we've preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. That, that was Paul's approach. We, we went, now let's go back and let's see how they're faring, see if they're doing okay. Well, you know, of course, from your knowledge of Acts, that there was a disagreement because uh, Barnabas said, I'm going to take Mark with us. Mark had gone with them on the first trip, but he had turned away and gone back home, and Paul said, Nix, no way, I don't want him to go. And Barnabas, incidentally, kind of interesting, if you look at verse 37, I'm using the New King James, and yours may not say exactly this, but Paul Barnabas was determined to take with him John called Mark. Then notice 38. But Paul insisted that they should not. Those are strong words. Paul was Barnabas was determined, but Paul insisted no. That was such a sticking matter for both of these men that they did not go together, but they split up. Barnabas went with John Mark. Paul took Silas. Now, we always, when we look at this, we always say, who's at fault here? And I'm not willing to place blame on anybody. I can understand the fact, incidentally, that Barnabas and John Mark were related. Sometimes relatives uh, cause us to do things we wouldn't do normally. But, but, but Paul had his scruples and he said, I'm not going to take a quitter with us. He may quit again. And so I don't blame either one of them. In fact, I think it worked out providentially for the best because instead of one mission team, there were two, two different directions, but both preaching the gospel. And incidentally, they didn't become bitter enemies because of this. Later, we know that Paul will ask for Mark to come because he's useful to him. Okay, so they leave, and they go their different ways. Paul and Silas would go to, uh, first of all, they, they would, in chapter 16, verse 6, they would go through Phrygia and then Galatia. Notice, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came to Troad. That's rather interesting. The Holy Spirit is really personally involved in where Paul's going. Don't go there. Don't go there. They come to Troas. And in verse 9, there is a vision. And a man of Macedonia pleads with Paul in this vision, saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. And Luke, who is writing this, and is a part of the group at this point, because in verse uh, uh, 10, you notice, we sought to go to Macedonia. Luke 
and Paul determined, and whoever else was with them determined, that that was God wanting them to do that. And so they went into Macedonia. Sailed from Troas. They came to Samothrace and Neapolis, two very small places, and incidentally did not stay there. And, and we can only infer, and hopefully correctly infer, that there was not a synagogue in either of those little places. And Paul knew that he wanted an opportunity to try to talk to Jews. And so they pressed on. And incidentally, that also shows, as far as mission methods, that you don't have to go to every town. You, you can be selective if you think that going one place is better than going someplace else. Okay, so, so they go and arrive at Philippi. And of course, Philippi is where there is no synagogue either, but it's a bigger place. But they also find that there's a group of women praying at, at the river. And Lydia is the one specifically named. Paul and Silas, Silas go and teach her. She is baptized along with some others. And then, and, and as good as that sounds, then Paul and Silas get in trouble, not because of anything they did, but because they, Paul cast out what is called a spirit of divination from a girl that was being used, and, and that's the correct word, used by uh, her owners uh, to, to uh, fortune tell. And so Paul cast out the spirit, and they got mad. And it, what it wound up causing was Paul and Silas being put into prison. And while they were in prison, God said, I don't want you to stay in prison. And he got them out miraculously. So from Philippi, uh, where do they go? Well, they go to Berea, don't they? No. Where do they go? They go to Thessalonica. They come to Thessalonica in chapter 17, and that's where we're going to see Paul going into the synagogue first, verse 1, came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. See, I think it's important that Luke tells us there was a synagogue because that's evidently something that mattered. Paul goes in and for three Sabbaths he teaches in the synagogue. He's doing this because there are Jews there and they allow him to teach and he's willing to teach. So he teaches at least three Sabbaths. And then there are people who are responsive to that. Verse 4, some of them were persuaded. Great multitude of the devout Greeks. And likely this does not mean Greek Greeks. It means Greek proselytes, people who had become Jewish in religion, though they were Greek by culture, not a few of the leading women and so on. Verse 5. But the Jews who were persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, gathering a mob, set all the city in uproar, attacked the house of Jason, and so on. Paul had to leave. From there, he would go then to Berea. And in Berea, jealous Jews would also cause trouble. And then he would eventually get to Athens. Athens is what I talked about Sunday night. Okay, so that's just a little bit of the history. Now, 
Let's talk about the concerns that Paul had. We really don't know exactly how long Paul was in Thessalonica. Yes, Luke mentions three Sabbaths. And if these were consecutive Sabbaths, it means three weeks. If you take a couple of days before and a couple of days after, you maybe can press this to four weeks. But it is easy to believe that Paul and Silas intended to stay longer. And I'll show you why. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 9, 1 Thessalonians 2, 9, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil. You remember this. For, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. Look over at 2 Thessalonians. And look at chapter 3 and verses 8 and 9. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but work with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we did not have the authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Now, if Paul and Silas were working night and day, it sounds like to me that they weren't just there for a short visit. They really thought that they were going to stay a while. And, and there's one other thing that we have that's, that, that causes us to wonder a little bit. Look, look over at Philippians for a minute. Philippians chapter 4. Paul commended the Philippians for how generous they had been and how much they had helped him. But look at verse 16 of chapter 4. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid, what? Once and again for my necessities. If Paul was there only three or four weeks and he was working night and day, and that's physical labor. Not, he's not talking about we were working for the church night and day. They were physically working. If they had worked night and day, but the Philippians had sent more than one time to help him with his necessities, with his needs, then it makes you wonder, could Paul have been there for some time? Again, we just don't know. Most commentators believe that they were not there for very long. However long that was, not very long. Now, believing that, and I believe it, when Paul left, there were a lot of things that probably were in his mind. One of them would have been this, because it would have been in most every preacher's mind. Can this young church survive on its own? We were just there a few weeks, and obviously in a few weeks we couldn't teach them everything we wanted to teach them. Can it survive on its own without us there? See, at this point, Paul doesn't know if he can come back, and he's going to address that in these letters, incidentally. And then secondly, not only could it survive, but would it be would they be able to hold on in the face of persecution if if this 
group of hateful Jews would run Paul out and create trouble, you can be sure that they wouldn't say, well, Paul's gone now, we don't have anything to be concerned about. There were still Christians there. And they would be concerned about them. So Paul wrote this first letter, 1 Thessalonians. And, and we see in this letter, from news that he received, that they not only held, held on, but they could be commended. Look at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1. So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Paul said, you're not only making it, you're really making a difference because your faith has become such an example to others that the word is being spread throughout large areas that you are indeed faithful people. Okay. When did he write the letter? There is enough evidence to believe that he wrote it in 51 or 52, late 51 or early 52 A.D., now that would be less than 30 years after the church began. And so most commentators believe that only the letter to the Galatians precedes this by Paul's hand. In other words, he wrote Galatians maybe 49 or 50, but he writes this one in 51 or 52. Now, the there good example uh, doesn't uh, mean that they were not in need of some help because they were. And so Paul sends Timothy to them. Look at chapter 3. Chapter 3. Incidentally, he notice the compliment that he gives in verse 20, for you are our glory and joy. And then in chapter 3, therefore... When we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. And I think he means by that, we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 3 to this kind of difficulty, to have to face difficulty. Um, now, what we learn from 1 Thessalonians, and word had evidently gotten back to Paul from Timothy and others, that they had, they had some questions that were troubling them. They, yeah, they were doing well, their faith was good, but, but there were some, some questions that they had. And, and one of those questions that was troubling was, what happens to those who die before Christ returns? Are they going to miss out? In other words, do you have to be alive when Christ comes again? Or if you die, then you just don't get anything. That was one of their questions. That will be dealt with in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But the other question is then, when will Christ return? 
Are we going to be alive? Is it going to be later? When is it going to be chapter 5? We'll see that. Paul needs to address those questions, and he does. But Paul also had some other warnings for them, and we'll consider those as we go through. Now, Paul wanted to accomplish something else here, and this is not insignificant as far as he was concerned. He wanted to make it clear that his failure to return to see them was not his choosing. <coughs> Paul hadn't come back when he writes this letter. And somebody may have been saying, hey, you know, if he really cared for us, he would have come back. Uh, I want you to look at chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, now notice, not in heart. Paul, Paul said, my heart never left. Endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. We're going to need to think about that when we get into chapter 2. How did Satan hinder Paul from getting to Thessalonica? Well, the first letter Paul hoped would answer questions, solve problems, and likely it did, but as is true in many situations, some people misunderstood. You know, what we have to understand ourselves is that inspired writing does not guarantee that readers get it. <laughs> you know, the divine part is perfect. This part on our part is not perfect. And so there were people who read what Paul wrote. They didn't get it. And so he had to write 2 Thessalonians. And most, again, agree that the second letter is likely not more than a year after the first letter, very close to the same time. What, what we're going to see in the next few weeks is that these two letters not only give us a lot of valuable information doctrinally, and, and it will give us that, but they also give us an insight that is almost unique. We see what someone has called the real Paul. The real Paul. N not just Paul the apostle, not just Paul the man of authority. We see a man of deep feelings. We see a man of great personal concern for people that he knew. Again, chapter 2 and verse 7. We were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Not just somebody taking care of a child. The real mother taking care of her baby. We were like a mother to you. What's interesting then, in verse 11 of the same chapter, chapter 2, verse 11, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Here is Paul saying, I'm your mother and I'm your father. I, I, I love you like a mother would love her baby and I love you like a father would love his children and try to take care of them. Now I want you to notice, if you will, on the back of the outline and 
what we've basically covered tonight is just the introductory part. We're not going to get much into 1 Thessalonians 1. But I do want you to note that on the back of each outline, there will be a little section that has some thoughts on Thessalonians, just things for you to think about and maybe to, to look up, to do something with. And then some things to really consider. And, and, and you will notice uh, at the end of uh, B, B of the last point, Paul was not embarrassed to tell others he prayed for them. You will see that in chapter 1. Before you can be an example, you must be an imitator. It's clear that spiritual fruit can be produced even in times of personal difficulty. This was not an easy time for people to be Christians. Sometimes we think that we do best when there are no problems. The early church flourished probably greater in times of difficulty than in times of peace. When those letters are written to churches in Revelation, some are experiencing problems, true. But for some, the problem is not persecution. It's apathy, unconcern, unfaithfulness. Number four says Paul could have focused on bad memories of Thessalonica. You know, people remember what they want to remember, don't they? Instead, he found good. He could remember their love, their faithfulness, and so on. And then the last one is think about the differences in reports concerning Corinth and Thessalonica. For Corinth, it was, it's been reported to me by the house of Chloe, what? That there are contentions, <laughs> that there are problems there. And, and, and 1 Corinthians addresses a series of problems. It's a chapter-by-chapter problem-solving thing. But to the Thessalonians, he said, the report about you is that you have great faith and the gospel is going out because of you and people are understanding the commitment that you have to Christ. I think it's going to, to be helpful. I think I've got a couple of more minutes. Um, let's go ahead and start. There's no, we got no timetable, right? Uh, the letter is introduced this way. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. The, the, the ancient practice was to begin a letter with the writer's names. If I were writing a letter back in Paul's day, it would say Alan, and then I would address the people. We, we've reversed the process. We salute somebody, and then at the end we give them our names. These started. And so Silvanus or Silas and Timothy are Paul's companions in the writing of this letter. And it's addressed to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There, there, are, there are a number of places in the New Testament where the Godhead members are put together in such a way whether it's two of them or three of them together, put together in such a way that you understand the equality of the beings. This is not saying in God the Father and in the lesser Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's the same in the Father and in Christ. The Father and the Son are one. And then there is that typical greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace uh, would be the typical Jewish greeting. Uh, grace would be something different. But, but Paul is talking about God's grace coming to him, the unmerited favor of God. That's what he's wishing for them. And, and interestingly, as he begins this letter, he, he doesn't have to begin it with a rebuke. He doesn't have to begin it uh, with difficulty. And incidentally, in Paul's letters, generally, generally, he tries to start with the positive which is a good idea to remember. We give thanks to God always for you, all making mention of you in our prayers. You didn't know that Paul was from the South, did you? For you all. For y'all, maybe he could have written. So Paul says, we, we thank God. Now, he's not there. He's moved on. He hasn't forgotten them. And he said, when we pray, we thank God for you always making mention of you in our prayers. Remembering, verse 3, without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and Father, our God and Father.